the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the fundamental things apply as time goes by like a train of love. Frankenstein hamburgers and Japanese gum. Plus the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a roundtable discussion of a new anthology out from Bain. This is As Time Goes By, and it is a collection of time travel stories that also have some sort of romance or love element in them. My own story, A Dry Quiet War, is reprinted in the collection, so I didn't want to moderate since then I couldn't go on and on about my story. So once again, the stalwart David F. Sherrad steps in to host the As Time Goes By Roundtable. Participants include yours truly, Tony Daniel, author Sarah A. Hoyt, and editor of the collection and Bain Editor Emeritus, Hank Davis. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. Now here's the news. The March mass markets are flocking like dragons, returning to their nesting area after a particularly good hunt. Those nesting areas being booksellers and the hunt being not really analogous to anything, and hence metaphor, destroying nonsense. Anyway, out now are Monster Hunter Nemesis by Larry Correa. This is the Agent Franks book that everyone has been waiting for, and Franks is as unrelenting and effective in this one as ever. And it's from his viewpoint. Also, we find out a lot more about his origins here as well. Also in March is 1636 Seas of Fortune by Ivor Cooper. This takes the Ring of Fire alternate history series uh, created by Eric Flint to the Far East, particularly Japan during the 1600s. This one was a surprise hit in trade paperback, so check it out if you haven't. Monster Hunter Nemesis and 1636 Seas of Fortune are available at booksellers everywhere. It's the Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm David Afsharirod. It's good to be back on the podcast talking with some authors and editors here. Today we're going to be talking about As Time Goes By. It is a new anthology. Uh, some old stories, some brand new, edited by Hank Davis. It is about time travel and romance, all rolled into one. Uh, joining me today for the conversation is Sarah Hoyt. She's the Prometheus Award-winning author of Dark Ship Thieves and Dark Ship Renegades, also A Few Good Men. The first two novels in her Shifter series were released last year in an omnibus edition called Night Shifters. And you can also check out the most recent book in that series, Noah's Boy. Sarah, thanks for uh, coming on and talking about your short story here. Thank you. 
All right, and we've got Tony Daniel. He's the man who needs no introduction, at least not on this podcast. He's Hugo-nominated, bonded, and insured. His stories are guaranteed to satisfy. He's the author of Metaplanetary, Guardian of Night, The Heretic, and The Savior. Those last two were co-written with David Drake, by the way. He's also written two Star Trek original series novels. So if you, like me, were disappointed in the second J.J. Abrams outing, you can get your Kirk, Spock, McCoy fix that a ways. Tony, thanks for being here. No problem. I hope my voice is here, too. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. And Hank Davis is back on the podcast with us. He's editor emeritus at Bain. He's the reason we're here today. He put together the anthology. In addition to As Time Goes By, he also edited Cosmic Christmas, A Cosmic Christmas to You, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, and The Bain Big Book of Monsters. He's a short story writer himself, though he elected not to include any of his own work in As Time Goes By, so you'll have to content yourself with his uh, always humorous and illuminating introduction. Hank, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. By age, I'm glad to be anywhere, as someone once said. Right. Well, Hank, let me start with you since you edited the anthology. Time travel is a subgenre that it's really one of my favorites in science fiction. And as you mentioned in your introduction, some spoil sports will say that's not really science fiction, but science fantasy, because as far as we know, uh, time travel isn't really possible. But then again, either it's faster than light travel or, you know, all sorts of fun things that we kind of just wink at. Um, have you always been a big fan of time travel stories? Has that been one of your kind of favorite genres within the genre? And what is it about time travel stories, do you think, that appeals so much to readers? What gives them their staying power? Uh, well, uh, I, I have trouble remembering what the first time travel story about a red was. I have a feeling it may have been Alley Hoop, which was a popular newspaper comic strip in the 50s. Uh, Alley Hoop is a caveman. He's a very unusual caveman, obviously an unknown species because there are dinosaurs where he is. <laughs> but the thing is, and he, he looks kind of like a Neanderthal, though his girlfriend looks a lot like a Hollywood model. And, and at some point, long before I started reading this strip, uh, he was brought forward into the, into the present by, by a time machine that a couple of scientists had developed. And they use, they send him all over time. He even uh, flew to uh, the moon once. Not the time machine, the rocket ship. That was probably my first experience. And that, that is a thing about time travel. If you have an interest in, uh, I mean, the first time you learn about dinosaurs, uh, they're extremely cool. And it's a pity they're not around to look at it anymore. You might have to run from some of them very fast. But with time travel, you can go back and check out dinosaurs. If you're fascinated by, the, by ancient Greece or the Roman Empire, you can check them out. And you can also pop into the future and then come back. Of course, we're all going into the future, but we're going kind of slow. Uh, Einstein made the point, if you go fast enough, you can uh, only age a few years while centuries fly by. The only trouble is that's a one-way trip. You'll be stuck in the future when you know it's dead. Well, with uh, actual time travel, you can check out the future and then maybe come back and maybe try to change it. And uh, besides that, uh, I've I've always liked time travel. Back when I was in the seventh grade in 1957, I joined the science fiction book. You got three books for a dollar. 
those were the days that all the 15 cents postage too per book. And uh, the first uh, of the first three I ordered, uh, uh, one of them was Tide Bob by Wilson Tucker, uh, also known as Bob Tucker. It is uh, Second Life as a as a science fiction fan. And the other one was Isaac Asimov's The End of Eternity, which is his uh, his classic time travel novel. So anyway, science fiction, uh, uh, of course, I I really expected to see space travel by time, and I did, although it was kind of underwhelming at the end. But uh, I, I I was never sure that time travel would be possible. Most people kept saying it wasn't. Uh, We'll see, but in the meantime, time travel is a great medium for stories. Right, yeah, it is a like I said, it is uh it's one of my favorite types of science fiction stories and uh sounds like one of your favorites as well. But this book, it's not just time travel stories, it's like a subgenre of a subgenre, which is time travel love stories. There are certainly time travel stories that, that don't involve romance or love of any kind. Uh you mentioned a few in your intro. Um I guess yeah, Ali Oop had a girlfriend, but I don't know if you would classify those as love stories necessarily. But I do think, it seems to me, and obviously to you, that time travel and romance kind of go hand in hand, maybe more often than romance and other types of science fiction. I don't know, what do you think, why why is that, do you think? What is it about them, these time travel stories that lend themselves to uh, maybe a romantic tale? Uh, Well, once again, uh, getting away from dinosaurs, which are fascinating, they're also... Suppose you always wanted to go go back and see what Joan of Arc was really like. Although if she's a, she's a saint, she probably would be interested in a date. But uh, you you could also uh, perhaps go back in time and correct mistakes you made. Maybe uh, you you regret uh, that you never married your high school sweetheart, or maybe some girl you knew in college, maybe you could go back, and uh, I assume uh, women might have similar ideas if they had wanted to if they wanted to marry the captain of the football team or something. Or, or the science fiction writer. <laughs> or maybe they did marry the captain and figured, no, I should have gone back and married that nerd that uh, grew up to found a, a giant software company and became a billionaire. But, but uh, another thing about time travel stories, unlike space travel, is you you're going somewhere else. You might run into someone. The the uh, counterpart to that is, uh, of course, the original is John Carter goes to Mars and meets uh, the Princess Dejanthoris. Uh But we. Uh, running into somebody who's that similar to humans on another planet is very unlikely, and of course on Mars it seems to be completely impossible. Well, in time travel, uh, you, you you could uh, interact with other humans in other centuries. Things might happen. Right, uh, Tony, Sarah, what do you think? Uh, I mean, what is it to you that drew you guys to time travel at least uh, enough to write? these two stories that we find in As Time Goes By. Um, what is it to you that is appealing about the concept or interesting about the concept or makes for good fiction? I like history, so I always wanted to go back there and look around and see what's actually like. I liked Clifford Timak 
he was one of my early influences, and he has a lot of time travel, including uh, I was reminded because of Inc. mentioning um, Aliyup because uh, in the book there's Aliyup and Shakespeare that were brought forward in time, and now I'm having trouble remembering the name of the book, possibly because I never knew the name of the book in English, but... Um, so he, he had displaced people, brought forward, and he had people travel in time. And, um, and then in the 90s, I spent an awful lot of time reading time travel. Sorry, because they seemed less... They seemed to be fraught with less hand-wringing and um, uh, dystopia than say, space colonization stories, which, for whatever reason, everyone but Bayon was shutting down on. So I like time travel. I like history, so I like time travel. And as for why time travel and romance make a good pairing, well, romance needs an obstacle. And, you know, having your loved one be... 4,000 years away is is as good an obstacle as any I can think of. Yeah, it's that, excuse me, it's that, that romantic uh, extremism of, of you can't, literally can't get to that person um, unless you can somehow bend the laws of nature. Um, I think that wish fulfillment is one of the, Big reasons that science fiction, uh, time travel, and um, and love stories come together. My first uh, published story in Asimov's um, was a time travel story. It's called The Passage of Night Trains, and it was pure wish fulfillment. It was about a kid who goes back in time and uh, no way, a kid who goes forward in time and meets the girl that just jilted him, and she's uh, thirty and she's had a horrible life, and she she apologizes. <laughs> He's a teenager in the story. So uh, another it didn't happen to me, of course, but um, it could have happened to a teenage boy at some point. And uh, the other thing about time travel stories is that it, it, like science fiction in general, but even more so, it lets you play with metaphysics, and and it's a it's a kind of a modern way to to do metaphysical speculation without um, you know philosophy's given it up completely nowadays. So, you know, maybe it's migrated to the time travel story. Interesting. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned um, yeah, you've always been interested in history and history plays a uh, big part in um, your short story in the collection. And I was just wondering, I think you kind of answered this already. It doesn't sound like you went out and did, oh, I need to write a historical st setting I'll go do a bunch of research. It sounds like uh, this is something that you knew and you incorporated. It is, do you set out to do research, or is this something that you just kind of, um, you know, you do in other times and it filters in? Not for a short story. I used, I used times that I was familiar with or had been reading about recently. Um, the, only, the only big obstacle in the writing is that I had started packing my books and all the Egypt books were packed. We're, we're in a, an interim house while we sell our other one, and the maximum we expect to be here is about a year. 
So I packed away into long-term storage all my research books that I um, don't see using for about a year. They, they don't connect to any of the novels I'm working on. So I had to go scrambling to the long-term storage in the storage unit to find the Egyptian books. But other than that, because there's always details you want to check at the last minute. So, but other than that, yeah, it it just went. My hobby is is history. I used to back in the days of the history book club. Um, they would send me their shiny catalog, and they used to ruin us on uh, history books. Nowadays, I ruin us on Amazon, and um, my husband has given up. So, yeah, what your story uh, is kind of about is it involves this sort of bureaucratic time commission, which is um, something that we've seen in a lot of science fiction time travel stories in which I always love the idea of. And it's uh, in here, it's their job to uh, basically I will maintain the timeline that they've got, right? So they don't want people going back and mucking things up and changing the future by changing the past. And, uh, of course, we have someone who's doing just that. They're going back to these different periods in history and, and messing things up. But uh, one thing I really liked is that you flipped this idea. You know, typically uh, we see it to where, you know, it's it's our time or in the future. And people are going back and, and you know, uh, winning World War II for the Axis. And this is the reverse. This guy, uh, you find out pretty early on... Um, He's creating a history that looks a lot like our own, and uh, I just thought that was a really interesting idea, and I just wondered how that came about. Um, it sort of reminded me of the flip side a little bit of Bradbury's story, A Sound of Thunder, where uh, you know we had a democratic uh, free society, and then by the end, because of their uh, meddling, we get a like a fascist state at the end, and this is sort of the opposite, maybe. We'll see how it turns out, but uh, the idea is that this would be kind of the opposite. We start with a more repressive regime, and, and hopefully, maybe we'll see uh, things turn out for the better. I, I was just curious about that. Well, a Sound of Thunder might have been somewhere at the back of my head, because I read a lot of Bradbury. In fact, one of my kids was addicted to Bradbury until he was about four. So, and if you know how kids like stuff read to them, um, I probably memorized most of the stories. But um, I wasn't specifically thinking about it. It's hard to explain because short stories... There was a time I wrote a short story a week. Um, I'm actually a natural novelist, and I had learned short stories, and they were very difficult. So I, I, I had to learn them because I read somewhere that this is how you broke in. Of course, it was sometime in the 40s, but I didn't know that. So I started learning to write short stories, and at some point someone said, hey, you should do one of these a week. And by the way, it sounds completely insane, but I do recommend it because when I was looking at my old short stories, the ones that are in the drawer and the ones that were, and most of them were published eventually, um, the ones that were published, and I, I, I started looking at them and there was 
a remarkable jump between the level I was at when I was writing, you know, a short story whenever, and the level I was at after writing a short story a week for a year. But because of that, I started out and I outlined the short stories and I knew exactly what would come out. And by the end of the year, I was writing them from somewhere in the back brain. So, and this story was very difficult because normally I sit down and I have at least a vague idea of what the story will be and just pours out. Um, this one actually took me almost a week. Normally I can write them within a day. This one took me almost a week because I had no clue where it was going or what it was doing. Um, and, and what I found after I finished it is that it's a lot more complex, perhaps because of that entire reforming of history. It's a lot more complex than my normal short stories. So I didn't set out to do that. However, my subconscious might have. I take no responsibility for the lunatic in the background. <laughs> Well, and you know, uh, writing a short story a week, that's a very Bradburyan thing to do. I, he always, I've read him recommending that and claim, saying that he had done that when he started out. So that's a good pattern to follow. Um, I was going to ask you and, you, and you kind of hit on a little bit of this, which is that we've talked several times now, um, and I tend to have been the, uh, the podcast guy for the story collections, and you have been on most of the ones that I've done and i was just wondering what is it about the short story form even though you're a natural novelist what brings you back to it and is it rewarding in a different way or challenging in a different way than a novel um if you could just maybe talk about the merits and the and the difficulties i can be more daring in short stories because if i fall on my face it was only a day i mean by the middle of this story i was aware that i was doing something very complex it actually, this short story is actually very useful because I've been stuck on a novel. And I couldn't figure out why I was stuck, beyond the fact that I, I keep getting sick. And so I'd stop for, you know, a couple of weeks. But then normally when I do that, I just go back and finish the novel. And this novel is almost finished. So I keep getting stuck on it, although... Right now I'm doing the, the revision, so let's hope it doesn't stick again. But it illuminated it for me because the problem I'm having with the novel is what, why it took me a week to write the short story. Because it's very complex, and I need to pay attention to a lot of little details. With, with it being a short story, I could just say, no one bother me for a week. And really, if you come into my office, I'll kill you. But with the, with the novel, I can't tell my sons and my husband to stay away from me for, you know, five, six months. So every time they interrupt me, there's stuff that goes in the novel that's not on paper. It's some, and it's not really in my conscious, somewhere in the subconscious. And I lose the thread and have to go back and keeps taking forever. And so, in a sense, it made that clear for me. It didn't solve it, but it made it clear for me. Um, the, the solutions not stop or not completely. But so, so short stories can be useful. And sometimes I do find that if I'm stuck in the novel and I work on a couple of short stories, 
my subconscious works through whatever the knot was that it was dealing with in the novel and it couldn't articulate. I, I just realized I sound like a total lunatic because it's, it's almost like I'm collaborating with the deaf mute. Um, because my subconscious does a lot of the work but doesn't always tell me what it's up to. Um, so I guess I have a bad cube mate and it's in my head. Um, so that's, that's, I, and I enjoy short stories at this point also at a different level. I wouldn't do something this complex with history in a novel because it would require way more research than I can invest right now. But in a short story, you know, I can do the, the, the dance of the seven paragraphs and it sort of works. Tony, how about you? You, um, I guess your short story output has slowed, but it has not stopped. This is an older story that you wrote, but you're still writing them occasionally, uh, short stories. What, what is it about the form to you that, that interests you or, uh, makes you come back to it occasionally? Or, uh, is it just a stepping stone and then now you can write novels and you don't have to mess with them anymore? No, I mean, it's, uh, well, it is that in some ways because, <clears throat> I mean, frankly, you can't can't make a living off short stories, and I sort I sort of discovered that by trying to do it during the '90s, and uh, it didn't work out. I remember waiting for for desperately for a check from Asimov's, you know, for a poem actually for twenty five dollars so I could buy some food back in the early '90s. So, um, you know, that one writes novels because that's what people want to read and they sell better. But um, I love writing short stories. Short stories are akin to, it's, it's like writing um, a sonnet, um, say, because you, you have certain strictures, you have certain, and you got to write within them. So, And if you don't write within them, you're not writing a sonnet. So um, if, you, if a short story starts getting too long, it's not a short story anymore. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of compactness that you have to bring to it. you gotta, you got to make everything, there can't be anything wasted because you only got so much space. And so you have to sort of, um, it kind of takes on a more of a shiningness, I guess you could say, because every sentence has to has to do something really, really powerful. Because you got five thousand words or whatever, and um, and then you're done. You've got to get somebody to that place, the reader, and uh, deliver, and then uh, deliver again after after. Uh, they thought that they saw what you were after, <laughs> and uh, just like a great poem, you know, it's the same sort of thing. In fact, it's sort of the same structure as a sonic. The way that the sonnet, the way you have to, um, the way you have to do the tension and release, and the tension and release in a in a really good short story. Anyway, that's probably too much inside baseball about structure stuff. Let's talk about the story. Um, I guess that would be outside baseball. I don't know if we've actually out and out said this on the podcast, but we've hinted at it, which is that um, Tony was my teacher uh, when I was at the University of Texas, Dallas, and uh, I took some writing classes with him, but uh, I first met him, he was teaching, uh, you were teaching literature, science fiction, and fantasy, and uh, like any writer with a captive audience who smart would do, you made us read some of your work, and this was the story that you made us read, and um, I say made us, but I enjoyed it, uh, which is A Dry Quiet War. I think you're probably your most 
anthologized story. Oh yeah, and, by far. This thing has been reprinted more than anything else I ever wrote. It's um, I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> so I have some ideas. <laughs> by the Probably. way, the dean made me put my own. He told me that I had to teach my own work since I was a writer. So I didn't. I wouldn't have necessarily required that everybody <laughs> well, uh, read was, my stuff, except that um, well, it was a condition of my job. Well, I'm pleased that you did anyways. So this is about the thing that's interesting to me, and this is one thing I picked up when I read it first in your class, is that this is kind of a Western, essentially. It's a uh, man, Colonel Henry Bone, who comes back from the war. He's on this kind of uh, deserty, feels old westy kind of uh, planet, Pharaoh. And there's the girl he left behind, the woman he left behind, and He's trying to readjust, and he doesn't want trouble, but then trouble comes looking for him. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Western story structure in many ways, but it's also got some really, really far-out um, science fictional and scientific elements to it. You know, it's not just, although I love Firefly, you know, Firefly's pretty much just space opera, but blended with cowboys. This is much more than that. There's a, a much deeper level of science going on here, and I just wondered how you managed to fuse those two elements together, this kind of traditional Western story with this really out there um, science fictional stuff. Well, hell, I don't know. It's, there was a, uh, it just came out of a soup. Um, I can tell you about the origin of it, which is that, sure. I mean, it's obviously, I'm, I love Clint Eastwood Westerns and High Plains Drifter is one of my favorite movies. Favorite movie. Um, yeah. And uh, I also love the movie The Quiet Man with John Wayne. Uh, it's one of, if not the my, if not the my, excuse me, if not the most favorite of mine, um, it's it's certainly one of them. And um, I basically stole that plot as much as I could, and then, but I didn't do it on purpose. It was all I was in Prague at the time. Um, this was the mid '90s, and. Um, I'd been trying to. I'd started this story, and I had been writing the first sentence of it for two years, trying to. I, I had this character in mind, Henry Bone, who's the main character of the story, um, but I couldn't find the story for him, and I couldn't find the story for him. And finally, um, I moved to Prague uh, to write in 1995. And um, while I was there, I, you know, now I'm happily married and have kids, but I was I was with a horrible woman. And we broke up, and I was just wandering around the city outside of English, um, everybody speaking Czech, which I could understand, but barely. And um, a lot of things, um, I wrote several things there that are among the best things I ever wrote. And I'm not sure, I just think my subconscious took over that, that year. And this came out of it. This was one of the stories that came out of it. Sent it to Gardner uh, at Asmos, and he snapped it up. So I was very happy about that. There's a line in the story that I wanted to see if you maybe could talk about a little bit. Um, it's when, so this war, it's the big war at the end of time is what Henry Bone is fighting. And it's um, this far, far future that we just kind of see glimpses of. And the idea is that the outcome of that war at the end of times, it, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but basically um, affects the beginning of time up up through the end of time that it's instead of something happening at the beginning affecting the end it's the end affects the beginning and uh, you're laying this out there with all these kind of um quantum 
mechanic stuff. But then there's a great line in there, which is, uh, he says, we live in that kind of universe and not another, they told me, to explain the war at the end of time. And at first it feels kind of like you're cheating, like maybe it's a little bit of hand-waving, uh, don't think about this too much. But I, it struck me as very profound. I mean, that sort of describes... That's the answer to a lot of things. Why is this the way it is? And it's because we live in that kind of universe and not another. And I wondered if that if that's just something me as a reader is picking up on or if that's a theme you um, wanted to explore or am I just nuts? The heart of Henry Bone's character, the main character in the story. I mean, he does what has to be done no matter what. He's the guy that, um, you know... That in the end is gonna is gonna do what has to be done, um, and is not gonna have any overly romantic notions about um, uh, about escaping with his life or anything like that. He is um, a man of purpose who um, he tries. I mean, the story is about him trying not to be that guy for a little while, but he just can't do it. He's a force of nature, um, and uh, yeah, that's the way he sees things. That's the way his you know, and it's kind of the way. Um, I think that the, some of the the Clint Eastwood character in the Spaghetti Western also sees things. Um, he's that kind of guy, the guy that comes into a town and doesn't want to save everybody, but but gets gets pulled into it. There's also um, something that I've noticed in some of your work that I've read is that there's uh, poetry in this story, a, a poem that's repeated a couple times, and you'd mentioned uh, just a minute ago about some uh, getting a check. Uh, for a poem you sent to Asimov's, um, what is it? I guess how do, how does that come about? Why do you why what is it about poetry that you like to include in your stories? Is it is it just a sneaky way to get us to read your poems when we think we're you're reading a story? Is that what it's about, or something more than that? No, it, I mean it has to relate to the story, obviously. But I mean, I started out being a poet, and then I then if there's anything that pays less than short stories, you know. It's, it's, you can't make a living doing that. I've quickly, even my romantic teenage self understood that. But, um, but that's my, that's, that's what I'd be doing if, if I lived in the world that, if I lived in another world and not this one as, you know. Yeah. Well, we need to go back in time and change it so poets are paid better. That's right. Dang it. Poems are a very important, uh, part of, of how I conceive of stories and novels, but they kind of start out as little poems in my mind. Well, we mentioned you uh, might go back in time to uh, somehow alter the uh, fiction market to pay you for poetry more so. Uh, but in closing, I just wanted to ask a couple questions, um, which is if everyone maybe, if you know, uh, not your own story that's in this book, but if you have a favorite time travel book or movie or story, you would recommend and then also if you could travel in time which direction would you go forward into the future or into the past uh, and you get uh, bonus points if you say when you would go to so uh sarah do you want to start uh, maybe a, just a favorite time travel story and then yeah which where where would you visit if you had a time machine so during summer of course um i was actually sitting here quietly grinning to myself because I didn't know that Tony was a fellow recovering poet. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, but, and then I, for, for reasons that, that aren't immediately obvious, I jumped sideways to, I haven't seen the movie They Made the Volume Zombies yet. And so I was, I was in a high mind frame of mind. I like uh, the Dorian Summer. Well, 
I, I, it was one of the first timelines I read, and I, I was fairly young, and I fell in love with the cat on, you know, page one, not as soon as he appeared. But it's uh, a friend who works in a bookstore tells me it's a favorite of little girls. Little girls who come in looking for science fiction inevitably walk out with the during summer. And this ties back to what uh, Tony was saying about wish fulfillment because um, the little girls all want to be grown up and have a grown up gentleman fall in love with them. I mean, they have no clue what they do with one, but you know, it's sort of a fantasy area where they're all grown up and they get married. And, and uh, the Doring Summer, of course, ties into that because he, he does in the end. Uh, married a little girl when she's all grown up. And my friend had no clue why this was so popular. I like it because of the, you can go back and fix your mistakes. And in that sense, Heinlein did that a lot. Uh, there's by his bootstraps. And so, uh, but that one's my favorite because there's a cat. Our first cat was Petronius the Arbiter. If I could go back, um, should this be a one-way trip or, or visit? Hey, it's your time machine. You can do what you want. <laughs> well, if it were to visit, I don't know that I'd actually risk trying to change anything because I'm 50 and I've sort of come to get a healthy respect for... Um, the things I don't know, and I'd be afraid of changing something and ending up terrible. But uh, I, I'd like to go back to the um, uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and and just sit quietly at the back, you know, um, and and listen. But if I could go, if I could go one way to live. I think Heinlein was right to always go to the future because, yeah, there are some awful spots, but the future in general is better than the past. Interesting. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, and Hank mentioned this, I think, in his introduction, which is that they made the Heinlein story all you zombies, which to me is kind of one maybe the ultimate time travel story they just made it into a movie called predestination with ethan hawk and did you say you'd seen it or you had not seen it yet i haven't seen it yet i've been meaning to see it but with the move we haven't gotten around got around to it um weirdly when i i homeschooled my younger son for a year for various reasons when he was 12 and when i was homeschooling him the only thing I could get him to read was short stories from, you know, the pulp year. Uh, after that, after, after he got some reading under his belt, he started reading the classic science fiction novels, but all I could get him to read was science fiction. And he both loves all these zombies and he's utterly creeped out by it. It's kind of this love-hate thing. So, I've been waiting for him to have some time off so that we can sit down and watch the movie. I, I've heard it's pretty good. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'll watch it. I won't say anything. I'll let you make up your own mind. But um, 
to all of you listening in podcast land, you should uh, certainly check out the short story, All You Zombies by Heinlein. Um, and then you can decide if you want to see the movie. Uh, Hank, what about you? Uh, favorite uh, story that you, you know, maybe that's in here that you put in the book or maybe that's not or movie. And uh, if you could if you could time travel, where'd you go? As I said in the introduction, I, I originally intended to end the book with All You Zombies. But I couldn't get it. Because I could get it for the book, but uh, the ebook rights were tied up by the movie people, who apparently had their own ebook edition uh, or e short story edition. Uh, and we 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 don't we don't do uh, different ebook versions of our paper books. So we try to make it the same. So that was out. Because so I, I really like uh, his bootstraps. But there's no real love interest in that. In fact, it's kind of a anti-romantic time travel story uh, because of uh, something the hero, who turns out to be the, almost the only person in on stage, uh, does at one point. I, I won't say what it is uh, to spoil it for people who haven't read it. Uh, I don't know. For my favorite, uh, it would be a hard choice between either H.D. Wells' The Time Machine or, uh, once again, The Door in the Summer. And uh, much like all you zombies, a, a novel beats out a short story. Uh, incidentally, I, I wonder if one reason why little girls coming into the bookstore were getting uh, The Door in the Summer. Uh, at one point, Maybe 20 years ago, or even longer, uh, I think Del Rey had the paperback rights. And their edition had a had the little girl in the story with the cat in her lap. Like if you looked at it, it didn't really look like science fiction. So I'm wondering if the little girl on the cover and the cat on the cover was a big selling point with little girl. Um, anyway, so, uh, I'm going to be a traitor. And there, there's the factor, of course, that unless uh, I, I probably should pop up forward in the future and get some kind of longevity drug. But once I had that, uh, uh, I think I'd like to go back to the uh, 30s, presumably with lots of money so the depression doesn't affect me, and read all the pulps as they come out. <laughs> oh, man. And also things like that would be uh, Hank Evan, wouldn't it? Louis Armstrong and other jazz greats in the 30s. So I once said this to someone and said, and was, and she said, "Are you sure you're a science fiction fan?" But, but uh, the '30s has a great attraction for me. Tony, what about you? Um, well, one thing I'd point out is Bane has a time travel series out now that I edit, which I really like, which is Steve White's Jason Thano uh, books, which are really fun. Uh, my favorite science fiction time travel story of all is um, by my friend J.R. Dunn, uh, and it's a novel called This Side of Judgment. Uh, and it's, I think it's the only good treatment of Holocaust time travel kind of stuff that I've ever seen, and it's really effective and it works. Um, I've never seen uh, people that do kill Hitler or whatever time travel stories are always it, it, something's wrong with them but this is one that works uh, it, it's about the Holocaust not Hitler 
and it works. Um, and I'm just in, in its construction of like the time patrol just felt right. Um, and I would I, we have it at vainebooks.com. I got uh, I resurrected it and made sure that uh, Jeff Dunn um, got paid a little bit more for this masterwork. Um, so I would say this side of judgment by J.R. Dunn is my favorite time travel uh, story of all. And uh, I would, you know, I'd like to go kill Stalin, but it probably wouldn't work out. So um, maybe seeing Elvis return in all his glory. I don't know. I like the present a lot. I'm pretty happy here. Well, that, don't be a spoil sport. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no one's no one's gonna go see dinosaurs. So I'll say that I would. I think I'd have to check it. But I'm gonna be honest with you. I would be bummed if they're as feathery as everyone says they are, because that's not a dinosaur to me. That's a big chicken. I think that'll just about do it. Oh, I gotta say my favorite. So I think yeah. I mean, all you zombies to me is sort of the ultimate time travel story. Um sentimental favorite i'd have to give it to back to the future which i've seen i don't know how many times uh it's not you know don't think about the science of it at all because they certainly didn't but it yeah i don't know i've always enjoyed always enjoyed it for the nostalgia all right well we've been talking about as time goes by a new collection anthology i should say of time travel love stories out now from bain i want to thank hank davis tony daniel and sarah hoyt for talking with me thanks guys Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup. It's the 1930s in America, but this is an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are called the Grim Noir. Here is this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Free Ship Bulldog Marauder The dirigible train was floundering. The lead blimp's engines were disabled and the other three were crowding into it. Four individual single hulls had been close-tethered together in a line when the Bulldog Marauder had appeared, and now it was all a jumble of crashing aluminum and fabric like a herd of injured animals being circled by a cunning predator. Most of the locals hated the Imperium, so there was always constant radio chatter reporting where their shipping was. They'd tried to trap South under a few times with decoys, cargo ships armed to the teeth, but he had a good nose for such things and seldom had been caught unaware. 
They'd come up from behind, doing a steady eighty knots with horsepower to spare. Once the captain had made the call that it was a legitimate target, he'd used his own power to alter the winds. Sullivan had never seen a weatherman work before. There wasn't any flash or anything fancy. It was methodical. First, they reached out and understood how everything was functioning within their range. Then they had to coax bits of it to work just right, standing at the very front of the cockpit with his hands pressed against the glass it had taken South under ten minutes to alter the currents until the wind was at their backs. Once the Imperium train had spotted them, black smoke had puffed from their engines as they cranked up the RPMs. South under counteracted that so that the wind slammed right into the nose of the lead dirigible, slowing it and rocking the crew. Within minutes they were passing through the oil vapor. Then they closed at terrific speed. When they had gotten into range, a heavy machine gun had opened up from the rear dirigible. Southunder had calmly ordered the pom-pom gunner to silence it, and four solid one-pound shells later it was done, leaving the cargo blimp's back end a mess of tattered fabric and broken railing and the black dot of the gunner tumbling toward the sea. We can't use the bursting shells on the hydrogen ones, Southunder had explained calmly. Can't sell burned cargo. They'd dropped altitude then, diving beneath the train. They needed to get alongside to board, and this route exposed them to the fewest guns possible. Pirates armed with scoped rifles were tethered to the outer catwalks, and they fired at anything that moved on the train above, and when they had a clean shot they started shooting at the lead dirigible's engines. This is the dangerous part, Southunder had said. We've got a very powerful torch on the crew and can control any fires that break out if we're in range, but sometimes they'll go suicidal and ignite the whole thing while we're right under them. He'd smiled, trying to be reassuring. That can get exciting. Within minutes the engines had been destroyed and the blimps had started to blunder into each other like blinded whales. Southunder had spun his finger... The wings had been turned accordingly, and the outer engines were pointed straight down, driving them right toward the jumble of crashing behemoths. Now all we have to do is pull up alongside while they're shooting at us and board, Southunder told him. Piece of cake. Barnes was the helmsman, and he frowned as he pulled back on the controls. By piece of cake, Captain Southunder means that it's just like elephants fucking while going a hundred miles an hour swinging on a trapeze. Don't forget the elephants are filled with explosive gas, Sullivan responded. Where do you want me? Southunder jerked his head. Take that ladder up top. Boarding party is in position. Aye, aye, Captain, Sullivan said. He'd always wanted to say that since he'd first read Treasure Island as a kid. He made sure all the pockets on his canvas vest were closed and that his automatic rifle was tightly slung, then started up the ladder. Sullivan, Southunder called after him, just so you know, we'll pick up the last piece of the geotel on our way home. It's not far from here. I just thought we'd kill two birds with one stone this way. About damn time. Sullivan climbed up through a hole onto the next deck. Ten men were crowded into the tight space, packed between hot pipes in two teams of five. It was dark except for a pair of red light bulbs. He had to crouch to keep from hitting his head. 
They were armed with a variety of weapons, everything from old Bergman subguns with snail drums to Winchester trench shotguns to stolen Jap guns he didn't recognize and even a Mauser broom handle machine pistol with the shoulder stock. Beyond that, they all had little axes or big knives on their belts. Parker was in a lead armed with a double-barreled shotgun that had been sawed off just ahead of the forearm. My team heads for. Ken's team heads aft. Parker leaned around to see through the columns of ready pirates. Ori, don't let us all burn to death, right? If these things catch, we don't have much time, for we're all cooked. He had to be addressing the torch. Sullivan turned. He had not seen the other active tucked into the back of the room, and he was surprised to see the serving girl from the previous night. Okay, Mr. Parker, no fire. She waved shyly when she saw Sullivan looking at her, then decided to study her feet. That's your torch? Sullivan, meet Lady Origami, or at least that's what we've taken to calling her since she didn't have a name. Twenty seconds. Southunder's voice came up the ladder. We're mid-starboard side, second vessel. Parker started to count out loud. Sullivan took a deep breath and let it out through his nose. Two men held massive steel grappling hooks attached to long spools of rope. When he got to three, the Jap named Ken jerked up the locking bar, and at one he shoved. Sunlight flooded in as the pirates charged out, screaming. For a second it reminded him of the trenches in France, but then the moment was gone, and he was bellowing along behind the others, running up the steel grate, coming out the very top front end of the bulldog marauder's cabin. The hooks sailed through the air, both of them catching on railings on the Imperium ship. Barnes was good. Sullivan only had to leap across a few feet of empty space before he was on the enemy's craft. He didn't have an assignment, so he followed Parker's team down the catwalk. Gunfire erupted just around the curve of the hull, out of sight, but was answered with a thunder of two 12-gauge shells. The pirates moved down the railing, shooting anyone that appeared ahead of them. As they reached a door to the interior, Parker signed for some to enter and clear it. They were followed by screams and the rapid chatter of a subgun. Parker kept going, so Sullivan followed. At the very end of the rail, a soldier in a brown uniform came tearing out from behind a spotlight, swinging a sword. He was screaming some war cry, and Parker shot him right in the face, dropping him clean. The pirate took cover behind the spotlight. Sullivan crouched next to him. See that bridge? Parker asked as he broke open the shotgun and pulled out the spent shell. We need to cross it and get to the next blimp. Sullivan peeked around the spotlight. The knotted mass of cable and short planks might have been a bridge at one point, but after the dirigibles crashing together, it was just a mess now that he didn't particularly want to try to climb. A group of Imperium soldiers was running down the other catwalk coming their way. Company, Sullivan said as he leaned out and shouldered the bar. He lined up the peep sight, put the front sight on the lead man and squeezed the trigger. Bullets puckered the soldier's chest, sailed through and stuck the man behind him too. Both went down in a spray of blood. He worked the rifle over the rest as they took cover behind the pylons. Parker had to shout to be heard over the rushing of wind and the return fire. We didn't expect this many. First blimp must have been transporting troops. Sullivan analyzed the situation. 
There were lots of them, few of him, and they had more guns. The glass shattered next to his head as he ducked lower. They were all along one side of the blimp railing. It was far, but he figured he could do it. This would be tough, but he wouldn't need to hold it too long. The world faded to its physical bits. The lightness of the hydrogen offended him in an abstract way, but most everything was just matter when you got down to it, and everything answered to gravity. He spiked. For the Imperial soldiers on the lead blimp, down suddenly changed direction, and they found themselves falling away from the cover of the pylons. Many of them caught themselves on the railing, but the unlucky bounced off, spinning away into the empty sky. Sullivan cut his power, and those hanging by their fingertips fell to the grating where there was no cover. Sullivan rose, firing the bar, working it right down the opposite deck. The rate of fire was slow enough that he just gently worked it from body to body. It was a massacre. He dropped the empty mag, smoothly reloaded from a vest pocket, and put a single round into the last man still crawling. Damn, Parker said, peering over the perforated spotlight. You get them all. No, Sullivan said. Somebody had been out of his range and had ducked beyond the curve of the hull. It had been an officer, and it sounded like he might be screaming some... Thoom. The explosion was muted as the officer committed suicide, but whatever device he'd touched off had been incendiary, intended to take everyone with him. Sudden fire licked around the curve of the bag, bright, hideous orange, and it just consumed everything. The canvas began disappearing like dry grass, leaving a hideous skeleton of aluminum in its wake, and the fireball was coming right at them. Axe. Sullivan said as he yanked the little hatchet from Parker's belt. He ran down the grating toward the fire and slid to a halt at the end of the catwalk. The bridge was attached by rope running through several steel grommets. He started chopping, slicing through the rope with such fury that sparks rose from the plate. Wouldn't that be funny if a spark blew up this blimp while I was trying to... Damn it, cut faster. He kept swinging with speed born of desperation. The wall of heat struck him, sucked the moisture from his eyes, burned his skin. The lead dirigible was curling into itself, forming a U as the heaviest bit was in the center. Flames washed over his body as the last rope snapped free. He stumbled back with his shirt on fire, dropped the axe, and beat out the flames. The burning blimp spun downward, falling slowly like the bright petals of a flower falling from a tree, and Sullivan swore as he realized his hair was on fire too. He made it back to Parker just as he saw that the skin on the nose of his dirigible was smoking. Oh, hell. Simultaneously, tiny bits of hissing fire appeared all down the visible seams. They were at the wrong damn end to make it off this one. The entire nose instantly disintegrated in a jet of orange flame. And then... It just stopped. Sullivan looked around in disbelief, somehow still alive. Parker was slowly uncovering his eyes. The fore section of the blimp was hanging in ragged tatters, beating in the breeze, and he could feel them tilting as they lost altitude. The Japanese torch dame was coming down the railing toward them, her eyes glowing and hair whipping in the wind. Fire good, she exclaimed, lowering her hands. The lights died and her eyes returned to normal. 
No, sweetheart, you're good, Parker shouted. Sullivan couldn't agree more. The crew of the Bulldog Marauder was efficient. They quickly searched the damaged dirigible's cargo hold, found a few chained slaves and some valuables, loaded them into the less damaged remaining blimps, and cut away the damaged blimp so that it could sink in the ocean. Southunder left five men to drive the remains of the train south to be sold in one of the free cities of New Guinea, where the resistance would surely appreciate the supplies. The slaves, mostly Chinese, were put to work with the promise they'd be set free as soon as they landed. Sullivan joined Southunder in his stateroom, which was little more than a closet with a table sandwich between armored bulkheads. He was getting tired of always having to duck to avoid hitting his head. There was a map on the table. I buried the piece on this atoll. Southunder stabbed his finger into the map. It's in a chest, wrapped in enough cold iron to give any finder fits, then sealed in wax. I put every ward and glyph in the rune arcanium on it, then I booby-trapped it the old-fashioned way with spike traps and a bunch of dynamite that's probably unstable as hell by now. Sullivan studied the map. The atoll wasn't that far from Banish Island. They'd probably flown over it to catch the train. We should have went there first. Not if we wanted to catch that train ahead of the storm front. I can steer the weather some, but I can't board dirigibles in a hurricane, and I wasn't about to let that cargo get away. I've been keeping watch over that blasted thing for twenty years, and unescorted trains are rare. Tesla could wait a few hours. No need to risk the traps, so we'll just stand off and blast it with the pom-pom guns until the dynamite goes off. Then we'll go down and pick up the pieces. So you decided to believe me, then? He shrugged. You strike me as an honest man? There was a sudden pounding on the bulkhead. Captain, come quick! Southunder was surprisingly nimble. Sullivan had a hard time catching up as the captain ran down the passage and slid down a ladder to the command deck. By the time he got to the control bubble, he could see exactly what the commotion was about. To the north was a wall of black clouds crackling with lightning. But more terrifying was what was to their west, several large Imperium airships, and even to Sullivan's untrained eye, those did not look like cargo ships. There shouldn't have been any Navy in this area, Barnes said. Could they have gotten here already from the train's distress call? Damn it, Kagas, Southunder muttered. There was a large brass telescope mounted at the front of the cockpit, and he swiveled it toward the ocean. Sullivan followed the direction it was aiming and noticed more black specks on the ocean, surface ships. That's not why they're here. There was a terrible sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. Is that the atoll? Southunder pulled away from the telescope, his face ashen. Well, looks like you were right. Hate to say I told you so, Sullivan muttered. The black ships were getting closer. Tiny dots dropped from their bellies as they released their parasitic fighters. Orders, Captain? Barnes asked. Southunder steadied himself against the telescope. Pushing for the atoll would mean certain death. If the fighters didn't get them, the heavy anti-aircraft guns on the surface ships would. Run for the storm.
That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Special thanks to Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sherrod for conducting his excellent roundtable interview. And a time-delayed barrage of fireworks and flowers of gratitude for Hank Davis, Sarah A. Hoyt, and I'll get me some of that too, editor and authors with stories in As Time Goes By, stories of time travel and romance, now at Booksellers. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.